What's up, everyone? We are back with another episode of The Crazy Ones. Today, I chat with Steve Gatina, who is the founder of Prey.com. And Steve has a truly wild story. He played college football for USC, then lost 100 pounds after his NFL hopes were dashed. He's built four businesses, including Prey, which has become the Spotify of faith-based content. And he has had insane life stories from having his cameraman kidnapped by 15-year-olds in Jamaica to losing his co-founder and mentor after a tragic plane crash. There's so much business and life wisdom in Steve's story, so I hope you enjoy. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. Yo, this is Jesse Pucci. And this is The Crazy Ones. Steve Gatina, thank you for joining us on The Crazy Ones. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So we spoke a few weeks ago and we spoke because I reached out to you on LinkedIn. You had been engaging with some of my content um, specifically around the plunge. You gave me some ideas for creating some viral content around my backyard game. And I think I actually originally heard about you through um, a mutual friend, Matt Gray, who I believe like you've spoken to and, and I was doing some work with him. And we had an amazing conversation and you took me through like the the arc of your career and it's just um it's remarkable how much you've done at such a young age but also just i think how introspective you are about your journey and so we're going to move along chronologically and i think at every stop every chapter of your story are just so many rich lessons that are going to be valuable for listeners and i want to start maybe maybe you're going to want to start earlier but i have to call out something i'm looking at right now i'm currently looking at you standing with the, I believe it's your mom after a football game, you were a player for USC. You're quite large in this photo. I don't know how heavy you are. Maybe like 270, 280. I was about 310. <laughs> but I will say it's a very muscular looking 310, at least in this picture. I'm looking at you on the camera now and you look way smaller than this man in the photo. How much do you weigh today? 210. So it's a, it's a hundred pound difference right okay. there. Okay, before we get into business, just because I find this fascinating, anytime I have a, a buddy, Dickie Bush, who played football in college, he lost 100 pounds also after he was a lineman. What is the process of losing 100 pounds? How, how do you take off so much weight? And did it happen quickly or gradually over time? I think before we get into the process <laughs> of losing the weight, we got to talk <laughs> about the process of gaining Fair. weight, right? And I think um, the weight gain process is, it's very simple. It's excess calories than calories burned, <laughs> right? So calories burned plus excess calories equals weight gain, weight loss. And in high school, I was about 250 pounds. So I had to eat 12,000 calories a day. That is just absurd. Just to get up to 310. That is like crazy. a very difficult thing to do. Just Like just for context, right now, like in the last three <laughs> months, I've gotten more into nutrition just to try to get discipline over my eating. And like my number I'm trying to hit with my nutritionist each day is 2,000 calories and 180 grams of protein. So you were 6Xing me for basically the entirety of college. And here's the problem, Alex. I didn't have a nutritionist. So what were my <laughs> calories? They were candy bars, chocolate milk, Gatorades, all the things that make you pre-diabetic. And fortunately, you know, I got to take some nutrition classes in college and work with some nutritionists once I was playing football. And then I started to learn about diet, right? 
and eating healthy, eating paleo, eating clean, eating organic. What do all these things mean? And that knowledge uh, armed me with the ability to take that 310 and turn it into a 210. So obviously you're not a professional football player today. You're a serial entrepreneur um, and so many other things other than just uh, a business builder. But <clears throat> did you anticipate trying to play in the league? Was that your goal? I did. Like like millions of other uh, American high schoolers out there, um, I got to play sports and I was really good at sports. And I had the opportunity to go play in college. And my dream was to become a professional football player. I grew up and I was obsessed with two things, computers and football. And it uh, turned out that football was going to be a great path for my life. So I spent my entire college career really focused on football. There were no internships. There was no entrepreneurship. And my senior year of college, I ended up with two fully reconstructed shoulders. And after coming back off those injuries, that was really the first time I realized like there was no chance I was going to go to the NFL. And for all the people that have played college sports that have gotten injured like that, like they know what that feels like coming off of that. Well, what, what did that feel like? And, you know, my anticipation of what you're going to say is it feels like a loss of some sort. Like, you know, the only similar comparison I have is stepping out of the CEO role from Morning Brew and it feeling like this, this void of like, who am I? What is my identity? Who is Alex Learman outside of building this business, Morning Brew, for the last eight years? Was it a similar experience for you in sport? Yeah, I mean, you know, growing up, you sacrifice everything to be a great athlete, right? You're not going to parties. You're not going on vacations. In college, you have people traveling abroad or these, they're doing interesting things and you're solely focused on this one thing, right? It's just like entrepreneurship. You start a company, it's your obsession. It's your identity. And you'll hear people tell you like, oh, like don't make this your identity, right? But it's like, yeah, that's nice, but that's not the reality. Like this is who I am. And when you lose that, all of a sudden, it feels like you have no purpose. You feel lost. You don't know what else to do or what to do next. Like imagine playing a sport from the time you're six years old until you're 22. And that was the sole thing you're focused on, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, sorry, you're done. Figure something else out. So how were you able to figure out what your purpose was and what did that end up being after uh, football? I was super fortunate to be at USC and I had a great teacher in an, and I took an entrepreneurship class and my teacher gave us an assignment, said, think of a business that couldn't exist five years ago that would boom five years from now. And I said, there should be a company that makes professional YouTube videos for corporations. And my teacher said, what's YouTube? So what year was this? This was 2008. Okay. So YouTube, like they just got bought by Google, but like there's, it was still like, you know, guys falling off skateboards and, you know, cat videos, right? That was like the bulk of YouTube. It wasn't really a, a professionalized platform like it is today. And so did you end up starting that business that you talked about in that class? I did. Yeah. And then by the time I finished with my master's in 2010, I had a full service production company. It was called Rep Interactive. We had an office in New York and LA. Actually, it was in Parsippany, New Jersey. There we I go. From Jersey. So 
Um, I say New York because nobody knows like where Parsippany is, but Jersey's great. Give it some love. Dude, Jersey is so great. <laughs> I think it's like very underrated. It is. And um, yeah, we ended up building out the online video channels for brands like Red Bull, Amgen, Marriott, Mattel, Los Angeles Dodgers, Coldwell Banker. And that was my first experience as an entrepreneur. So how long were you running that business before you ended up working on something else or stopping working on the agency? So, you know, football ended for me and like my last game was Rose Bowl 2009. And I had already kind of done that homework assignment and rolled into the company. And so it, I really figured that company out in 2010. Like it took a couple of years, a lot of like mistakes. And I focused hard on that company for about two years. And we started to scale. We we're making money. It was the first time that I was ever making money. And I was like, whoa, this is super cool. But it was a service business. And what that means is there's only 24 hours in a day, right? To provide service. And if you're not working, you're not earning. And I was, I just felt that pressure and, and I knew I had to come up with a new idea. So it took me from 2008 to 2012, but really I didn't graduate till 2010. Mm -hmm. So I was like in it hardcore for a couple of years. And then I had, I knew I had to come up with a new idea for something that could be a product based business. Yeah. My understanding is the next business was video for it, which was like your aerial stock footage business. Before we get into that, what were one or two of the biggest lessons you learned in that first venture with REP, whether it relates to how to build a great service business, how to find like your early customers when you had no reputation as an entrepreneur, like what were some of your biggest learnings? I think the coolest thing about that entire experience, Alex, is it was almost by accident because it started when I was in school. And so it forced me, I was doing these things as, as a homework assignment and it eventually became my master's thesis. And so what I was doing, and I didn't realize it back then, is I was practicing in public. And one of the things that you do that like I admire so much is you post you're practicing in public with the plunge. Like yep. you're posting the stories on LinkedIn. You're posting stuff about it on Twitter. And that is probably the best thing that you can do when you're an entrepreneur to start. If you just start practicing in public, you're naturally going to get feedback from people. And you don't have to, you don't have to accept the feedback or the criticism, right? But you should listen to it because it's coming from a place where you actually hit on something. And I think if you can practice in public, I think that's the best way to start. And so when you go out, talk to customers, you get it on camera, you post about it, you tell people about your business, like you practice in public. I, I honestly think that's the best way to start a business. And just from there, you can figure it out. What would you say to someone who I would say the most common thing that an entrepreneur will say when they hear, oh, building in public provides immense value for an entrepreneur, will say... Uh, I have a fear of basically being criticized. Like I'm afraid to hit send um, on my tweet or my video or my LinkedIn post. Or the second, I would say most common one is someone's going to steal my idea. They're going to see what I'm building in public and just go and do the same thing. What do you say to that? I think at the end of the day, you have to ask yourself, are you committed to being the best? And if you're committed to being the best and doing the work that it takes to be the best, then if you believe that the best ends up winning in the end, it doesn't matter. 
And so the requirement for becoming the best ends up being the right feedback and getting the right feedback as fast as possible. Now, not all feedback is the right feedback, right? Like the worst advice is bad advice, right? So like you have to have a filter so that you know, like don't accept bad advice or like maybe those people just aren't quite informed. Like we might not even need to put a label on it like good or bad, but feedback, it really is a gift. And so if you're committed to being the best, it doesn't matter if you practice in public. In fact, it's a super advantage. I love that. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think, you know, that's the way that I've always operated. At least in the early days of Morning Brew, I was concerned about competitors. I was worried, not not even just about um, creating content in public about the brew, but also about talking to competitors because I was worried that they would use that information against us. And at some point, someone smart like yourself said basically what you said to me. And my whole view changed where it's like the way that you operate a business successfully is you be you become extremely good at intaking information and filtering that information. So when you deprive yourself of information you could be getting, it, it that is a huge trade-off as a business owner. And also, I just kind of got to a place of peace where if someone uses information that I've put out into the world about the business and they beat me in my own business, they deserve to win. They deserve to win because they were a better builder of the same idea. And so I totally agree with you before. And, we the fl- and the flip side of that is like what Sam Walton might call no pride of ownership, right? Yep. So like if someone takes your idea and beats you, then like you can take other people's ideas too. Totally. And that's totally okay. Yeah. I love that. Uh, I want to talk about video for it, but one last question on your first business, uh, the video agency, whether it's today or 10 years from now, if you look back on that first experience and you have to remember one story, like one great or profound memory from that experience, it could be a horrible memory of a, a significant challenge you had with the business. It could be like a small thing whatever, for whatever you, reason you remember or a great memory. What is one memory that you're never going to forget from that business? Oh, there's so many memories. And I think starting starting a business from scratch, like one of the gifts that nobody talks about are all the memories and experiences you get to build with people. And there's definitely a balance that you have to strike with the people that you work with, right? Um, Because they work for you. And so you have to learn how to lead, but also you develop a bond like best friends. So it's a complex thing. But one memory is uh, one time we were filming a video for a company called Iberostar in Jamaica. And my cameraman got kidnapped by some drug dealers. No way. So yeah, way. So we were at this place called um, Rick's Cafe in the grill, Jamaica. There's like this cliff jump at Rick's Cafe that that goes into the ocean. And I think they just had this like coup or this like major uprising in Montego Bay, Jamaica, which is actually where we were filming. So like we didn't realize like Jamaica was it was kind of popping off at the time. But we went to film the Cybero Star and we wanted to get, we wanted to go to Rick's Cafe because it's supposed to be this famous spot. So we went up there and across this little bay is there, there's a bunch of locals and they're doing like backflips off the cliff and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And so my camera guy says, Hey, I want to go to the other side. And he's got to walk through the little town to get to the other side of this cliff and, and get you guys jumping off from this other angle. And we're like, okay, cool. And then like this whole crew of like, you know, 
14 to 16 year old kids that are like selling weed to tourists. They basically like capture him. Oh my God. And they're yelling across the cliff, producer, producer, <laughs> if you want your cameraman back, you have to give us money. No freaking and I'm like, way. Dude, yeah. And I'm like, oh man. So I, you know, I like walk up to the cliff and I'm still, I was still pretty big at the time. I was probably like a solid, like 260, like pretty jacked. I walk up to the cliff and this like local guy like scales up the cliff. Cause he like jumped in the water and he had to like swim to my side because they're not allowed on the property at Rick's cafe. Uh -huh. And he says, producer, like, are you the producer? And I said, yeah, I'm the producer. <laughs> what do you want? And he's like, you better give us money for your cameraman. And I said, I'm not giving you money. Like I was like doing like some kind of like Donald Trump negotiation or something. Totally. You know, like, You'd totally. also think that at 260 pounds and uh, like big guy that you're at the the don't fuck with me uh, size, especially when talking to like 14 to 16 year olds. Yeah, I was like channeling my inner USC offensive <laughs> tackle, right? Love and, it. But like really internally, I'm like freaking out, Alex, because yeah. like we don't have permits. We're in like Jamaica. Like it was, we went off the grid. It wasn't even in the production schedule, right? And I'm like, I'm not going to give you money. And he goes, you better give us money. And I'm like, no, I'm not giving you money. And he goes, you better give us money. And I go, how much? And he goes, $50. <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> Dude, I had to like contain myself from not laughing. And that I was, was incredible. Like, and I looked at him, I said, I'll give you $20. And he goes, $40. And I go, if you walk this, him this to the gate. This, this turned into a flea market negotiation. Dude, it turned it, it went straight <laughs> flea market. And I told him, I said, you have to walk him to the gate and I'll give you $40. I'll give you 20 now. You have to walk him back to Rick's cafe and then I'll give you the other 20. That so is why. So you, you him got back. him back and you got him back we, for 40 bucks? No, because he didn't walk him to the gate. He actually had his friend walk him to the gate. And I said, I told your friend that he had to walk my guy to the gate. He didn't do that. And I grabbed my guy and they had like security. And the guy had like an AK-47, you know, like running the security at Rick's Cafe. That is wild. Yeah. So that, that was is a good insane. One. Well, I'm sure your cameraman is very grateful for uh, for the money you paid for him. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's REP. That's your first business. Now talk about, you said... The agency business was a great start, started really organically with this class at school, but the idea of trading uh, your time for money was was a flywheel that you wanted to get out of. So what was next? So, um, you know, I, I sat and I thought about it and I was kind of stressed out. I was like laying on the floor in my room and I'm I'm looking over under my bed and I had all these hard drives, like these one terabyte hard drives, which were like super expensive at the time. And it had all of the extra footage that we hadn't used from all over the world. And I'm just looking at it and a guy calls me from a TV show and he says, hey, I know you guys were in Costa Rica last month. Can I buy some footage from you from Costa Rica so we don't have to go down there? And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. How and was this you, something that you had done prior? Like, had you sold any of your extra footage at that point? I had never done this before. Yeah. I had never done this before. It was just a producer that was a friend of mine. And he said, hey, my budget for this footage is 10 grand. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, like, am I just about to do like make 10 grand over? Given you were phone? never planning on actually monetizing <laughs> this extra content at all. No, it was on. It was literally on hard drives under my bed. And so now I'm looking at all my hard drives as like 10 grand, you know, like the stack of hard drives. Right. And I'm like, oh, dude, this is a vault of money right here. 
And so I thought, boom, stock footage. Like I need to do a stock footage company. And so that's what I set out to do. I set out to basically take all that footage that was on those hard drives, build an e-commerce platform and have a stock video footage website. And like nobody was really doing stock footage at scale yet in 2011 or 12. A lot of that had to do with um, infrastructure costs, bandwidth, streaming costs, et cetera. But people were just starting to get into it, like Shutterstock.com and Getty Images. Like they, were, they really were starting to build it out. And so few clarification questions. One is, were you keeping the agency running while you were doing the stock footage business? I was. I was. And what I was doing is I was cash flowing the agency yep. and pouring all that cash into the stock footage company Got to it. build the stock footage company. And then we, which, when we spoke last time, you had mentioned how like there's actually, there was a great moat in what you were doing with aerial stock footage, which I wasn't like aware of. Like talk about why it's actually difficult for like someone wants to, like they hear this idea. They're like, wow, people actually have tens of thousands of dollars of budget for aerial stock footage, why don't I just go out tomorrow with my drone in New York City, lift it up over the Hudson and get amazing stock footage of the Hudson and the New York City skyline? Why is it not that easy? So why is aerial footage so valuable? Because it's so hard to get, right? Do you have an aircraft? Like, do you have a helicopter? You probably don't. Nope. Do you know anybody that has a helicopter? You probably don't, right? So now all of a sudden you gotta go find a helicopter. Then how do you put a camera on the outside of a helicopter? Do you have a gyro stabilized gimbal? Do you even know what a gyro stabilized gimbal is? If you do, like, is it a Cineflex or is it a shot over? Because like, depending on which one it is, different cameras go inside. And like, depending on the cameras, it's gonna get us different kinds of footage, right? And then if you have a helicopter and you have a shot over, and you have an Ari Alexa 8K camera that you can get the footage with. Do you know a guy that knows how to fly the helicopter? And also, do you know a guy that knows how to get the footage from the shot over with the Alexa in it? Oh, and by the way, do you have permits to do this? Cause like, oh if we're God. trying to get like the Empire State Building, like you can't just fly up on that thing, right? No, I don't have any of those things and I don't know what a, a gyro gimbal stabilizer is. Um, it actually, now, so, now let me ask you something real quick, Alex. Yeah. Do you have a credit card? I do have a credit card. Do you have an internet connection? I do have an internet connection. Can you go to shutterstock.com and type in empire state building aerial footage and buy it for $50? I'm capable of doing that. Yeah. So you see the supply demand. Totally. You know, so I, I, okay. I'm sold on why this is hard as hell to do and why people would prefer the convenience of not figuring out how to shoot aerial footage and getting the permitting and the right people and the right equipment. I have a lot of questions, but one is why not just stick with that business? It sounds like a great business. It sounds like you get this down and you become like the supplier of the highest quality aerial stock footage in the world for movies, for Getty, for Shutterstock. Like why not just keep doing this? Why do you move on to the next thing and then the next thing? There's a few reasons. One of them was you know, Hollywood was late on the shift from film to digital. And, and now they were going digital. Another reason was we just kind of cracked the code at Helenet on being able to provide surveillance as a service. It's a different kind of SaaS business, but where you're basically doing aerial surveillance for law enforcement 
agencies or clients, right? So it could be DEA, FBI, government agencies. It could be LAPD, NYPD, and you're providing them with aerial footage real time so that they can respond to whatever they need to respond. Does, to. does that mean, just out of curiosity, in the context of that, like I, the way I envision you doing the work with video for for your stock footage or REP for your video agency is like your when you need to capture footage you're go you're getting the helicopter or the the plane you're getting the equipment you're going up with the cameraman and the the pilot getting the footage and coming down with surveillance did it change the game of like did you have to be up in air all of the time or was it only when law enforcement or government told you that they needed you to surveil it depends on the mission set right so if we're doing the New York marathon, you're going to need to be up there for the whole time during the marathon. But after the marathon, maybe they don't need you. Got it. However, if you're going to if you're a smaller municipal police department and you don't want to buy a bunch of helicopters and hire a bunch of officers to have always on surveillance, you can outsource that. And so you can have a private company do that stuff for you. One thing I just want to call out uh, before we kind of talk about the business of Helenet that you ran with Alan and everything after that, I want to just call out that like every business we've talked about thus far has been not just you finding a problem with your own experiences or um, and then trying to solve that problem, which I think is kind of like the through line of everything you've built. But it's also that in every business, when you build a business, inevitably you find 15 more problems or opportunities. And so actually building a business is the best. It can be a great endpoint, but also could be a great through point to reach a different endpoint. So it's like with your video agency, while there's definitely downsides to having an agency, i.e. trading your time for money, there's also a great upside, which is like you could look at it as you're being paid to solve problems for clients. As you're solving problems for clients, it's giving you ideas of other ways you could solve new problems. And same thing with video for it, with stock footage. By creating stock footage, it inevitably leads to conversations that lead to new opportunities you didn't even think about when you were starting the business. 100% agree. And like really the, the progression as a business builder that I've just kind of experienced, now looking backwards, I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense is one, all the businesses that I've done, they're all media companies, literally every single one of them. Two, I kind of did this progression from service business to product business to really Helenet was like a platform business. And so there's even like a progression there where you go from like services to products to platform. And I think that that is a path that a lot of entrepreneurs can walk. Um, because you get into the service and you're getting paid to learn the industry, right? Totally. And then you, to your point, you see the problems and then you're like, oh, I can provide this product. I can provide that product. And like, at what point do you understand the products and services so well that you can build an ecosystem or a platform or a community is like the latest word that people are using, right? So I want to, um, I want to talk about the experience with Helenet and, you know, the life-changing moment that you experienced while building that business. But first, a quick word from our partner. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So we were just talking about, you know, kind of this lesson of being a sponge of information while you're running businesses because it gives you ideas for new businesses you can build. And we talked about how kind of you first made the shift from video agency to aerial stock footage business because you realized you had all of this extra footage with the agency that people were willing to pay a ton of money for. And by the way, there was a great moat for actually being able to capture super high quality footage that only you and your partner, Alan, had access to. Then you talked about the move to from stock footage business to Helenet, which is aerial surveillance. So this idea of for the FBI, for government agencies, how do you surveil from the sky using kind of all of these tools you already had developed and had access to with your previous businesses? Talk about how that business went, the experience of that business, any lessons, and you know the the defining moment that kind of changed everything. When I got into that business, there were a few things that totally shifted my perspective as an entrepreneur. I think before I got to Helenet, I had more of a small business mindset. And when I got to Helenet, there's a few things that I saw that just shifted my perspective. The first one was Helenet was really a platform business. We had brought together all of the all of this kind of these technologies and tools to where we could have three major lines of business that fed each other. One of them was aerial production. So we filmed all the major motion pictures and TV shows. So like Mission Impossible, Transformers, CSI, Law and Order, all the major motion pictures and TV shows. The second one was we did aerial surveillance. So we did confidential surveillance missions for uh, government agencies and municipalities and some foreign governments too. And the third one was we did helicopter air ambulance. So patients and organs, hospital to hospital. And what I saw there was that if you could combine the right mix of tools and technologies and talent, that you could actually build this platform where you could have multiple businesses that grow at scale, right? And like, that's how you're getting to like 100 million or 300 million in revenue. It's not, it's probably not from like one product or one service. But again, going back to your core, content really did sit at the center of all of this. It did. It was the foundation, right? It was the foundation. So that kind of shift in thinking happened. The other shift that happened that was very real for me, Alex, was my previous companies, they were pretty much... About the first one was actually about having fun. Yep. It was just, I thought it was fun. I was like, we're going to do it. I like hired all my friends. I made all the mistakes. Like, and then the second business was about money, right? And I was like, I want to make more money. I want to have more money than I need. It was so important to me. When I got to Helenet, it was the first time that I saw you could build a company on margin and mission that you could really do profit and purpose. And like, that's a real thing. And I saw it every day because we were, we were making movies, saving lives and catching bad guys. And it was rad. Like it was as cool as it sounds. And it was really cool until Friday, September 11th, 2015. And my business partner died in a plane crash outside Medellin, Colombia, just after we finished the job. So to give you an idea where I was at personally, I'm 29, right? CEO of this 
multinational mid-sized helicopter company. It was like my dreams came true. And now all of a sudden as the CEO, the founder dies on my watch. Like of all the things that could happen, all the worst things that could happen as a leader and a CEO, fatalities are the, are the worst thing. And then when it's the founder and the person that's the Michael Jordan of helicopters, literally, like, how do you handle that? What are you supposed to do? And I didn't know what to do, to be honest. Like, I literally did not know what to do. So what did you do? I did what any good millennial does. I hit YouTube and I typed in like motivation videos and like started watching like Tony Robbins, like highlight videos on YouTube. That's actually what you did. Like after that experience, literally, cause like, I didn't know what to say. First, we were a 24, seven, three, six, five company. Here's one question. Do you shut down the company and stop or do you keep going? The number one cause for airplane crashes is pilot distraction. You don't think the pilots weren't distracted? Also, if we shut down the company, Alex, people definitely are going to die because we're saving people's lives, right? We're doing like children's hospital, UCLA medical. So what do you do? Do you take the risk of crashing or do you shut down the company and have guaranteed loss of life? And by the way, something you haven't mentioned here, like you've just talked about the business part of this, like from a practical perspective, how, how do you think about this from a running the business or not running the business perspective you haven't mentioned at all like the grieving process of you lost a mentor and a business partner that you have to deal with at the same time as a 29 year old of making this business decision so i'm i'm so grateful i'm so grateful to a guy named mark haas that worked for me he's a former united states navy seal he's still a navy seal but he's retired he he was on the SEAL teams for like 25 years. Mark gave me this framework that I use. It's called mission team self, mission team self. And I've adapted it for like my business purposes, not Navy SEAL stuff. You break down your perspective into three perspectives, the mission perspective, like what is our mission? And really that's about the customer. Like, what am I supposed to do for the customer? And that's my priority. The second is team. What's the responsibility to the team? And like team is our company. And like usually company, the, the team kind of component or company component comes down to revenue minus expenses equals profit. Like people will throw a bunch of other stuff in there that's like, soft and fuzzy, but like, no, it's literally revenue minus expenses equals profit. And then self is like, how am I feeling? Like Steve or like as the CEO or something yep. like, and, and so for me, from a mission perspective, I knew we had to keep those flights going, at least the children's hospital flights and the medical flights, like we had to, and really we had to make sure any of the law enforcement stuff was stable. Like we could shut down film production or something like that if we needed to. From a team perspective, I was freaked out because as soon as the principal of a company dies, the majority shareholder, it can trigger all kinds of like banking covenants and ownership gets split up into trust, right? And it, it starts to get super complicated. But either way, 
you need to continue to make sure that formula revenue minus expenses equals profit flows. Did you feel and like for, you, did you feel like you had the the respect of the team? Like how was the how was the company set up said differently? Like did people look to Alan as kind of like the guiding light of this business and you were just the operator of the business or did they really did they have trust and belief in whatever you thought? Cuz like to me that means very different things in how you engage the team after this tragedy. Alan was the figurehead of the company. People did not have trust and belief in the new boy king CEO. Like that was not at the top of their list. And when Alan died, there was no other option. So I had to come in and be a strong leader and say, here is what we are doing. This is not a democracy. I am not asking for a vote. I am not looking for consensus. I am making decisions on the business and we're gonna focus and we're gonna execute. And if you have a problem with that, we're going to help you transition and find a new role at a new company. And so I had to switch instantly from like, we're having fun. We're in Jamaica. My guy got kidnapped. Like we're making stock footage to like straight up wartime CEO. Yeah. To be honest, like I pretty much ignored the grieving process and how I was feeling. For and how long? Months. And I like just got married. Right. So like, you know, my wife is like, she thought she married like fun guy, entrepreneur, creative <laughs> media dude. And now all of a sudden I'm like, you know, wartime CEO. So there, there was probably like a massive shift for her just like watching me go through this. Right. And I had a friend of mine and he asked me like, dude, he asked me literally what you asked me. He's like, what are you doing for you? And I was, I told him, I was like, I'm listening to like some Tony Robbins audiobooks, you know? And he was like, you should listen to this podcast from my pastor. And to give you an idea, like I'm, I was not religious, like really at all. Like my mom's Jewish, which means I'm Jewish. My 23 and me says I'm Jewish. My dad's Catholic. My grandma raised me Catholic, like dragging me to church. If it wasn't computers or football, like, dude, I was not into it. Like, I don't even think I was into girls, like in high school, like I was into computers and I was into football. And so someone throws me a podcast from a pastor and I was like, dude, not my style. Like definitely this is not my thing. Mm -hmm. He was like, listen, listen to the freaking podcast, dude. You're listening to like Tony Robbins doing like core power yoga in the morning. Like <laughs> you can handle the podcast. You're going to be okay. And so I listened to this podcast and it's from a guy named Matt Chandler in Flower Mound, Texas. And this podcast changed my life. And it was not what I thought it was was going to be, by the way, it was not like this, like soft thing. Like this pastor is not like some soft guy. It was very hard and it was very direct and it felt very authentic and honest. And so I started listening to these podcasts every day on the way to work and on the way home. And like that time for me in the car, like that hour and a half on the way to work and on the way home, that was kind of like my personal time of like figuring out my stuff. Do you remember what that first episode was about that the friend gave you? Like what the message was of that episode? It was, it was called The Peace That Jesus Brings. And I remember seeing the title and it must have been, it was like December of like 2015 probably. Because I remember it was like, it was after my birthday, but it was before Christmas. I remember seeing that title and I was like, definitely not for me. <laughs> yeah. You're like, it's back to core power for me. 
Yeah, I'm like, dude, what are you talking? I'm gonna go get like a green juice and like hit Soul Cycle <laughs> real quick. But it was, it was for me. And that was a shock to me too, Alex, because I was like, I'm a media expert by now, right? And I never even heard of this kind of content before, actually. So I was like, first of all, like as a media expert, like how am I not knowing all the media categories? Mm -hmm. Then I dove into it, started doing research. And I found out religion and spirituality was actually the number one category of all podcasts in terms of both audience size, so consumers and content creators. And as soon as I found that out, now all of a sudden, like the entrepreneur brain inside of me is like turning, right? And so talk about you, you have this life-changing experience. You don't really go through the grieving process because you're focused on being a wartime leader. You ultimately start the grieving process when your buddy's like, listen to this podcast by a pastor. You basically shrug it off because you're like, computers and football, that was it. You listen to it, you get value from it, you keep listening. It opens your eyes to religion actually being this massive category of content. What was the original idea for Pray.com? What was the original idea for the business? Well, let me talk about how I got to the idea, Perfect. actually, because I think that I think a lot of people think that they have to have like some kind of perfect business idea when they start. And also they don't know how to get a business idea. So they like go, they go like pay for access to like some database of like business ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Which is fine. Like if that works for you, but the way that I've always done it is I think through this framework that, that I call where we were, where we are, where we're going. And I actually use this even in my company, all hands, like I have like all hands tomorrow. So I'm going to have a slide where we were, where we are, where we're going. And like, if it's not a, we, it's a, you like where I was, where I am, where I'm going. So I thought like, where was I when I graduated college in 2010? And I was like, I'm kind of got into this entrepreneurship thing, having fun doing media. Where am I now? Like it's 2015. Like I've been you know, somewhat successful as a media entrepreneur. My business partner just died. I'm like kind of a, a jerk wartime CEO and cold to my wife and like not really talking to my friends. And so then I play that movie out. Like, where does that guy go? And I was like, ooh, let's kind of, let's, let's bend that path up a little bit. Like we need to change that thing a little bit. And so I thought, well, where do I want to go? Like, who's the person I want to be when I'm like 35? Like, I want to be loving. I want to be kind. I want to be successful. I want to help other people be successful. And really, I got to watch what happened after Alan died. And he left this legacy. He had a true legacy of all these lives that he saved. Like, at his funeral, like, we gave a speech. And it was like, he saved thousands of people's lives because of the stuff that he did and he invented. Like, I'm trying to have, like, a legacy. And like, who is the person that I need to be? What are the core values that I need to have to be able to be that person in like five years from now? That was like brewing underneath within me. And I was listening to these podcasts, right? And no matter what you think about religion, it's a, it's a culture and a set of values. Like you can believe in it, you cannot believe in it, but there is like a prescribed culture and set of values for you to follow. And there's basically a promise in there that you will not only have your best life, right? But your best afterlife, if you 
chase after these values. And like these values, by the way, it's like imper like it is impossible for you to live them every day. You you're gonna for sure fail at it, but like it's it's a worthy attempt every day. Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna buy this because I see where it gets me in five years from now. And it's a different path than the one I'm on. And and so then I was like, how come I didn't know about this content before? So that was also like brewing in me. And I thought the only reason I didn't know about this before is because we we don't have a digital destination for faith content. We have a digital destination for sports content, ESPN. It's got all the sports. But why is there no digital destination for faith? That doesn't make sense because this framework, these values, this culture is so valuable that it can actually change the entire course of your life. And I had gone through this progression as an entrepreneur, right? Services, products, platform. And I was like, oh, build a platform for all the production studios so that they can distribute their media content on a single destination. That was it. That was Pray.com, the digital destination for faith. That was the whole idea. And how has that destination or kind of the thesis changed based on what you've learned from the market. So how is Pray.com different today from that initial thesis you had of basically being the platform to allow priests, pastors, ministers to create their content that they create for their church, but be able to actually upload it and put it in the single destination? What did you learn that made you have to change course a little bit? Our mission at Pray.com is to grow faith and cultivate community so that we can leave a legacy of helping others. That's literally what we're here to do. And we're building the digital destination for faith. That's what we're doing. We have an app today that's the number one app for daily prayer and faith-based audio content. And I learned along the way that like just this massive vision for 8 billion people around the world to get hope and inspiration on a daily basis, like that's awesome, but you have to start somewhere. And it's okay to start small. And actually, if you don't start small, you can't get big. So when I came out the gate at Pray.com, we raised a bunch of venture capital. So we got all these incredible, intelligent Silicon Valley investors, right? Greylock, Sequoia Scouts, Founders Fund, TPG, Science. Like we have these amazing investors. And I came out and realized that I actually just needed to start with like one little thing to get traction. That first thing was a prayer wall for all the churches in the United States to post their prayers and their prayer requests. Cause it's the worst thing in the world. When I send you a prayer request, if I say, Hey, Alex, my mom just got diagnosed with stage four cancer. Will you pray for me? And you're my pastor. And I don't hear anything back. Like, dude, do you think I'm coming back to your church? on Sunday when you ghosted me on my mom with cancer, like that sucks. And by the way, I didn't realize because as someone who's Jewish, but also culturally Jewish, don't go to temple a lot. Like I didn't realize until you told me that this was a thing where like answering prayers is a key part of the job description for a priest and a pastor. And you also told me that when you went and spoke to tons of priests and pastors, this was like one of their most kind of painful annoying things was like they received prayers in all different ways or like requests for prayer RFPs like in text email 
uh, phone calls and sort of keep it organized so that they didn't ghost people was actually very difficult for them. Yeah, it's super difficult, right? And and especially, you know, this practice is the most common in the American kind of evangelical church, right? Which is which has a little bit of different practices than the traditional Catholic church or a synagogue or something like that. And so it's it's more difficult for the evangelicals, right? Who are the biggest content creators, who are the most vocal about sharing their faith, right? Who are the absolute best customers for us to serve, like at least in the United States. And yep. so I'm looking at my content supply, right? My content creators, reverend, minister, pastor. And I'm saying, man, we got to solve this pain point for them before we can even engage with them on content distribution, aggregation and distribution, right? I want to finish with two more questions about Prey before we uh, wrap up with uh, with an AMA from one of our listeners. Just give a sense, you know, I I don't know what you can or can't talk about, but just give a sense of like the profile of the business today in terms of how many team members you have, how many different types of revenue streams you have, because I thought a really interesting thing about your business with the surveillance business is you thought of it as like these three or, and the business before that, you thought about it as these like three lines of revenue. Do you think about things in the same way with Prey, where it's a media company that can be monetized in a number of ways? Just give me a sense of like, snapshot of the business today with kind of the metrics that matter most to you? Yeah. So today we've got three primary lines of business, right? So, you know, pray.com, right? In, in the meta version, pray.com digital destination for faith. We are this magnet for people that want to consume incredible faith content. And then within that, we've got our consumer subscription business, which is our premium content that we sell subscriptions to. And that's about 10% of the content in Prey. Then we have a bunch of free content that is powered by ads, right? Ad supported is, is what this is often called. And these are original podcasts that we produce. So one example of a podcast that we produce is called Bible in a Year. You could go listen to it at bibleinayear.com. And Bible in a Year is inside of the Prey app, but it's also on Spotify, it's also on Apple Podcasts, we put ads in there so we get ad revenue. That's this kind of third part of the business. By the way, is, the is the thesis right? Where it was your thesis right of like, wow, religious-based content in podcast form does get a lot of downloads. Let's see if we create original content, if we can draft off of that. Like does Bible in a year do well in terms of downloads of the podcast? It's, it's dominating. So Bible in a year is going to do 4 million downloads this month. That's why. So it it absolutely dominates, and it's it's incredible. It's been a it's been a blessing, and we worked with a pastor out of Dallas, Texas, named Jack Ram to do it, and we're so grateful to him for for hosting Bible in a Year. It's awesome. So Let, it's like I told you, we just got to figure out email for it, and then you guys are gonna absolutely rocket ship. Major unlock, right? Major unlock. Totally. So so the that's third. That's the ad. So you have subscription based ten percent of your contents. It's there then the rest of your content is free, monetized with ads. And then what's the third bucket? The third bucket of the business is this ministry SaaS or pastor SaaS business. And, and really that's this core of the business that we're building for pastors. It's the original thesis of, hey, we're trying to build all these tools for pastors so that they can build a digital church, right? They have their physical church, 
their analog church that you go to. But what about their digital church? Because for 2000 years, physical church has been great. COVID-19, physical church doesn't work anymore. We need a digital church. Same as movie theater to Netflix, right? So this pastor SaaS business or this ministry SaaS business is our third pillar where we build them all kinds of tools so that they can build their own digital church on oh, pray.com. I love it. One last question for you from the Prey experiences. What is one or two of the most important lessons that you've learned from building now? What is your fourth business as an entrepreneur? I mean, the mission team self is so big for me. Being able to kind of balance these three perspectives at all times. And, and I actually train the team to also communicate back to me in a mission team self perspective. Because if you're sitting there and you're in charge of email marketing, right? We can talk about what's best for the customer. Mm -hmm. That might be different than what's best for the company, right? Because the business, the, our CFO wants you to stack those emails with ads, right? So that we can maximize the revenue, right? But you might not think that's what's best for the customer. And then you might have your own personal flavor of how you want to do the emails, which may be actually separate from the customer or the company. So the mission team self model, that really is an incredible model, I think, to permeate throughout your business. So a huge shout out to the United States Navy SEALs for that one. Um, the next is just personally, I think it's worthwhile to re-audit where you were, where you are, and where you're going. And really play out the where you're going path. And think about how do your core values guide where you're going? And is that where you want to go? Steve, one last question for you before uh, we wrap this up. So every episode of The Crazy Ones, we do something called Startup AMA where we collect hundreds of questions from our listeners. Most of our listeners are entrepreneurs, whether they're multi-time entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs. And I have a, a really interesting question um, for today's episode that I want to get your perspective on. So Anna Pawsey emailed in and she asked, how do you manage being the boss and cultivating a friendship with your employees? What are your thoughts on this? I struggled with this in my first company. I hired all of my friends and definitely burned some friendships that I really miss and I feel bad about. So uh, if you're listening to this and you're one of those people, I'm sorry. And um, if you're one of those friends that let me experiment with you on my leadership style and you're still friends with me. Thank you so much. <laughs> like, thank you. Um, and I think that where I've landed with pray.com, cause I have three other co-founders who are all best friends to me is just really setting the expectations that we're a team and this is a performance based organization. I think you have to be upfront and over index on the tough conversations with people. And especially if you're a nice person that really cares about people, like some people, they don't care too much about other people. They really are unaffected by, you know, these relationship uh, strengths sometimes um, or strains. I don't know if that, I don't know if strengths is a word, but Close I enough. think um, if you're really kind, you have to over index on hard conversations before they happen. For example, one of my co-founders, Matt Potter, one of my best friends, he let me speak in his wedding. I walked Matt through when we first linked up because Matt left as the CEO of his own company that was super successful. Shout out to Homestack. Matt left his company to work with me. And I walked him through not only 
hey, I'm the CEO of this company and I'll respect you as a co-founder, right? And I'll respect you as a talented person in whatever role you're in, but I'm the CEO. And also, here's how I'm going to fire you. And I literally walked him through the words that I would say when I let him go for performance reasons. And Matt was like, that's crazy. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly how it's going to work if you don't perform. I love that. And I love that not because uh, you, uh, actually, I do love it because you played out the scenario of firing Matt, not because you're actually going to do it. But I think beyond this, just like I think common wisdom of being direct with people. And, you know, my view is like the best form of providing feedback and being upfront is, you know, what Kim Scott calls radical candor. It's the idea of being challenging people directly, but caring deeply, right? What you were referring to before is some people are ineffective that uh, unaffected by when they do that. I would say those are people who live in the quadrant of challenge directly, but don't care deeply, also known as assholes. But I think as important as understanding that framework is the idea of setting the expectation up front because then the it's almost like um you know the the bumpers in a bowling alley or a bowling lane you basically set up the bumpers in that conversation with Matt whereas where from that point on you guys can be friends but when it is in the context of thinking about work and building your business there's a set of rules by which you two operate in conjunction with each other that's right and then like what are the signals when the ball's starting to go towards the bumpers like, how are you giving that feedback constantly so that like he can readjust and hit a strike, right? Because you want him to hit the strike. Totally. I love that. This has been such an amazing conversation, not just about like your businesses you've built, but also just all the introspection and transformation that you've experienced both as a function of your businesses, but also in service of your businesses as it relates to life experiences that have in a lot of ways to me grown you as an entrepreneur and so many good strategies and frameworks for other business builders. So Steve Gatina, thank you so much for joining the crazy ones. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it.